Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is the Bulwark's own Will Salatin, author of the fantastic short book, also audio production called The Corruption of Lindsey Graham, which is available if you go to thebulwark.com, you can find that highly recommended. All right. Topic one. Is the DeSantis campaign done? Is it over? This week, DeSantis announced a reset of his campaign. As of last April, he was standing at about 31% among Republicans compared with Trump's 46%. Today, Trump is at 53.1 and DeSantis is down to 18.4 based on the Real Clear Politics uh, average of polls. Well, he is promising a leaner, meaner campaign, and it is certainly possible to imagine a leaner campaign. For example, they expended $87,000 for a donor event at the Stein Erickson Lodge in Utah, which was for one evening's entertainment for donors. So it's easy to see that they could get leaner, but I'm not sure if they could get meaner. (laughs) Damon Linker, that was his strategy, to be more right-wing than Trump, and the plan is running into some bumps. Yes, of course, that is definitely what the plan seems to have been. You know, those of us who've been in politics or at least watching it for a long time, we have a hard time diverging from the assumption that the way this game works is that you sort of run to your base, which tends to be further out from the center than the general electorate. And then in the general election, you kind of track back toward the center. But, you know, Trump had such a reputation for being this kind of rabid populist who outflanked the more standard conservative outlook of the Republican Party from Reagan through W. Bush and even through the Romney campaign. He was constantly outflanking it on the further out populist right that Everyone seemed to think, well, DeSantis is going to come in here and he will definitely end up trying to sell himself as kind of competent Trump. I'll be like Trump, but I'll actually get things done. I'll know how the government works and how to accomplish things. And that will be his calling card. But instead, he and his campaign have decided, no, what we want to do is to say that Trump himself is too moderate, too milquetoast, too standard, too much of a real, you know, old-fashioned conservative. And what we really need to do is prove that DeSantis is the true populist, the true right winger. And really, it's kind of interesting because like my big question for DeSantis from the beginning is like, is he going to hit Trump at all? Or will he tiptoe around him? And it turns out he and his campaign hit Trump all the time, but only from the right. He never criticizes Trump for, oh, I don't know, the coup attempt for endangering his own vice president's life in that insurrection. He doesn't 
praise Trump for, you know, spearheading the effort to approve vaccines, which is one of the best achievements of the Trump administration, you would think. No, instead, he attacks Trump always from the right because he sometimes would say things indicating that he wanted the votes of LGBTQ Americans. That means that Trump actually is pro-woke. He thinks, you know, Trump was pro-vaccine, and this is a terrible, terrible thing. He was kowtowed by Anthony Fauci and the public health bureaucracy, and on and on and on. And what we're seeing now is that, as you noted, Mona, uh, you know, you can certainly, like, help things somewhat by spending less money. You can fire employees of the campaign, which they are doing a lot of. From some reports, roughly a third of the campaign has been jettisoned. When it comes to the messaging, there doesn't seem to be any moderation at all. In fact, this week, this astonishing thing happened where DeSantis was being interviewed and he was asked, If you were the nominee, would you consider RFK Jr. as a running mate? So what do you think of this uh, Robert Kennedy guy who's making so many waves and his attacks on Biden and on the vaccines and so forth? Would you consider him as your vice president? And, you know, political tactician genius that he is, DeSantis says, well, he can't really be my vice president because he disagrees with Republican voters on too many things. But I really like what he says about health and vaccines and medical issues. So the thing to do would be to ask him to serve in my administration. You know, sick him on the FDA if he'd be willing to serve or sick him on CDC. Uh, but in terms of being... This has got to be one of the most outrageous things I've ever heard from a mainstream candidate of either party. I mean, putting Robert Kennedy at the head of these public health institutions is the equivalent of putting a flat earth creationist uh, at the head of the National Science Foundation. I mean, Kennedy is a conspiracist and a loon uh, who regularly attacks all kinds of vaccines, not just the COVID-19 vaccines. Plus, he's a lifelong Democrat whose views on all kinds of other issues are very far to the left. So, I mean, talk about a kind of own goal. And it really does make me wonder, does this guy just simply not have what it takes in any respect? If you're a conservative of any kind and you think the COVID-19 response was bad, the proper response is to say, I will fix it, make it better, appoint better people when I am president. It is not to say, in effect, yeah, burn the whole thing to the ground, which is clearly the implication of even entering entertaining the idea of putting Robert Kennedy at the head of the FDA or the CDC. So if you can't tell, I'm pretty disgusted by the whole thing. Yeah, 100% agreement. Will Salatin, you know, early on in his campaign, the one thing that DeSantis was willing to criticize Trump about was the only thing, arguably, that Trump deserves credit for, or one of the only things, which was the development of the vaccines. And he decided to go after him on that. But this RFK Jr. thing is so absolutely bonkers. And it really makes you think that it wasn't just that it was an outrage and a moral outrage, but it was also just the politically the stupidest thing. And I have to say, do you agree with me that the delta between Ron DeSantis's reported IQ 
And his political IQ is probably the biggest in American politics. There are multiple problems with the DeSantis campaign. The number one problem is the candidate himself, and we can set that aside for a minute. But if we, we want to talk about the strategy of the DeSantis campaign, it is certainly true that they have made a series of bad decisions and that their positioning, I very much agree with Damon's analysis here, their positioning is you can't go wrong taking the most anti-democratic, anti-woke position. And that's certainly true on COVID, where, as Damon pointed out, they're trying to outflank Trump on the, I don't even want to call it the right, just on the anti-science wing of the party. It's also true on, for example, the latest kerfuffle over race, over these Florida curriculum standards, where you have Representative Byron Donalds, a black Republican who comes out and says about these Florida curriculum, just so people are familiar with the subject, the DeSantis administration has some new curriculum standards. It's sort of at a bureaucratic level. But one of the items in these new curriculum standards says that we will teach about skills that slaves learned in the course of their enslavement that were, I believe the phrases that benefited them personally later on. And the idea, you know, there's this whole subtle argument about, well, did they, did the slaves somehow develop these? Is that a matter of their own agency rather than slavery being some kind of benefit to them? But of course, the whole larger picture is, please don't tell children that slavery was good for the slaves. <laughs> I mean, just as a sort of basic moral matter. So Byron Donalds comes out, a Trump supporter, and says what DeSantis should have said about this, which is, that the new standards are good, they're robust, they're accurate. He says, he wrote in his tweet, Byron Donalds did, that being said, that the standards are good, the attempt to feature the personal benefits of slavery is wrong and needs to be adjusted. That obviously wasn't the goal, and I have faith that the bureaucrats in Florida will correct this. Now, that is what Ron DeSantis and his campaign should have said, right? Mm -hmm. How did Ron DeSantis and his campaign deal with Byron Donald's statement? They attacked him. They attacked him. <laughs> they went on Twitter. There's the press secretary, the other folks from the DeSantis campaign. They referred to Byron Donald's as a supposed conservative. They said, quote, maybe he shouldn't swing for the liberal media fences. Uh. So there is a general problem in the DeSantis campaign of an inability to read the room. And they're putting themselves on a series of issues in an untenable position electorally. And that was supposed to be one of the benefits of nominating Ron DeSantis instead of Donald Trump. Our guy can win. But if they're stupid about their positioning, as they are on these and other issues, then that thesis is not true. And DeSantis's competitive advantage over Trump in the primary, his electability, evaporates. Yeah. Bill Galston, people cite the example of John McCain when they're searching for historical parallels and people who did massive resets of campaigns and then were able to go on to success. Um, by the way, I was at an airport in 2007 when John McCain had pivoted to his reset. And I can testify that I was on a plane where he was also traveling and that he was by himself and in coach. So uh, he took his reset seriously. But look, DeSantis is losing, according to the Miami Herald, exactly the voters who could have been and should have been his ticket to success in the Republican primary, namely college-educated white Republican voters. Half of his support has been lost from them. So on the one hand, you know, based on everything that Will and Damon have said, and we all 
know from following this, on the one hand, you think, well, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. I mean, he has certainly made his bed. Same time, you know, he is the only Republican at the moment who is even within anything like striking distance, and it's not really, but of Trump. So if not DeSantis, who? (laughs) Nicely teed up, Mona. (laughs) Because I wrote a column for the journal a week or two ago, which was a kind of parable drawn from my own experience with Walter Mondale's presidential campaign in 1984. I was his policy director for my sins. And he was not only the front runner, but a front runner by probably the largest margin ever seen for a non-incumbent at that stage of the campaign. He came into Iowa, did what was expected, but then something unexpected happened. Mondale got 49% of the vote in Iowa. Gary Hart got 17% out of the blue. And then suddenly he was the anointed one, the challenge. Mm -hmm. And the contrast, I can tell you, in that next week was startling in its effect. I began to think that we had serious trouble when Hart dressed in suspenders and a lumberjack suit picked up an axe and from some distance hurled it end over end into the center of the bullseye at the, <laughs> at the other end. And then, of course, he famously upended Mondale by 12 percentage points in the New Hampshire primary. And if modern technology had allowed him to reap the financial rewards of his out-of-the-blue victory, he probably would have been the nominee. We just had time to stabilize and stave him off after a desperate struggle on Super Tuesday. This year's Gary Hart could well be Tim Scott, in my opinion. There was a survey not too long ago out of Iowa that put Trump in the high 40s. Ron DeSantis was at 16. Tim Scott was at 11. DeSantis wears badly. Scott wears well. People don't like DeSantis. They like Tim Scott. DeSantis is dark and negative. Mr. Scott is dark and positive. And I intentionally insert the word dark because as an African-American, he also invites Republicans to purge their sins. So it may not be DeSantis, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be Trump. The question is, this is a question that Karl Rove raised in his column just today, how many people have reservations enough against Trump to try to find an alternative nominee within the Republican Party and failing that, either stay home or look for some other choice. I think it is much too early to write the story of Trump's victory, or for that matter, DeSantis's demise. Now, I'm tempted to do my Lloyd Benson imitation at this point. I knew John McCain. He was a friend of mine. And believe me, Ron DeSantis, you're you're no John McCain. And everybody, I think, would assent to that. But he has resources. He has an organization. He has a door-to-door grassroots operation in Iowa, which I think is second to none. Now, obviously, if the dogs don't like the dog food, that isn't going to help him very much. But I'd be a little bit cautious. If he shows badly in the first debate, I think that would be time to revisit this question because then I think the fat would really be in the fire and a lot of people 
not only donors, but early primary voters would be looking for an alternative. Linda, I'd be curious to hear you on the topic of Tim Scott's appeal. You know, there was a time in Republican Party politics when an African-American senator who's very popular and well-liked and who has an inspirational up-from-the-bootstraps story would be incredibly appealing. But do we live in that era now when there's such a premium on anger and hostility to the other side and that's sort of the coin of the realm? Now, bearing in mind, DeSantis obviously played that a little too hard, especially when he's trying to say that Trump is some sort of a squish. And so answer that if you like. And then also any thoughts that you have about the way he handled this slavery thing, because I did look into those standards and the tragedy is that they're fine, except for that one line. He should have just said, oh yeah, you know, the standards are great, except for that. We'll fix that, as Will points out. And instead he made it so much worse. I don't know. What do you think? Well, you're absolutely right. And this is a problem, I think, Mona, that you and I have long recognized among Republicans and and, uh, many in the conservative movement. And that is that they have a tin ear when it comes to the subject of race. And I think, you know, it's one of the things as a founding member of the neoconservative movement, you know, I think those of us who used to be liberals were active in the civil rights movement, marched in protest against civil rights violations and have had a background, first of all, dealing with the Black community and the Latino community, not being constrained by living in lily-white suburbs and going to country club functions on the weekend, that there's just a natural ability to recognize when something is going to sound bad. And you're absolutely right on those standards. I mean, first of all, the original standards that were put up by the educational establishment for teaching advanced placement course in African-American studies were terrible. And we talked about it on the show, and I went through specifically about some of what was wrong with those standards. But when the state of Florida decided to put it together, they actually did you know, a halfway decent job. I mean, none of these compendium of what we should teach on these very, very big topics uh, at the high school level is going to be brilliant or necessarily have the kind of depth and subtlety we'd like to see. But there wasn't really much wrong with it, except for the wording in certain areas. And ironically, the section on learning or slaves having acquired certain skills uh, while being enslaved. Here's the wording. It said, they would teach how slaves developed skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit, unquote. Yeah. And and look, that, that was very similar to the wording in the original advanced placement course. But the point is that it was not recognizing that you cannot ever say anything good about slavery or the Holocaust there or, you know, Adolf Hitler. There exactly. just is no upside there. Just keep your mouth shut. Just know when you just, anything you're likely to say is to take your foot and shove it down your throat when you get into these areas. So, so that was part of the problem. And that I think is a cultural problem 
on the right. And I don't know how you fix it because you can't necessarily go back and rewrite your own personal history and, and have these kinds of sensitivities. But with DeSantis, it isn't just that. I mean, this week in his reset, I guess one of the people that he fired in this reset was a guy who was posting on Twitter some films that had Nazi imagery Correct. in it. And, you know, this was a guy who had earlier posted some very hateful stuff about trans people. And, you know, how do you have those people on their your staff? Again, exactly. Who doesn't understand this? So I, I think he has a basic problem, and Republicans in general do. Getting back, though, to your question of Tim Scott, look, from... Bill Galston's lips to God's ears. I hope the Republican <laughs> Party is capable of at least picking as a second choice in Iowa someone who might emerge. And I'd be delighted if that was Tim Scott. He would be such a better alternative. And, you know, it would be a good thing. I'd be delighted if it was Asa Hutchinson. I would be delighted if it were Chris Christie. I just don't think that at this point... We're likely to see that happen in a way that's going to, you know, basically undo the Trump campaign. But we've got another indictment right in the wings, and that I still believe. I know that I'm almost alone on this program feeling this, but I do still believe that these indictments matter and that over time they are likely to have some impact on the Trump campaign. You're not completely alone. I, I have the same view. Maybe it's just a wish. <laughs> Maybe. I can't resist telling the old story about my former boss, somebody that you knew well, Linda, Jack Kemp, who was, of course, a former professional football player before he got into politics. And people said about Jack that he had showered with more African-Americans than most Republicans have ever met. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, let us move on now to a really interesting topic that was raised by a piece by Jonathan Chait of New York Magazine. Namely, he talks about how both Republicans and Democrats made mistakes in the way they handled the COVID-19 pandemic. But his view is that Democrats have learned from their mistakes what were their mistakes? Keeping schools closed way too long when the evidence showed that it wasn't necessary and that the price that we were paying was tremendously high. And he says Democrats have learned their lesson, whereas Republicans, there's a new study out that confirms earlier studies showing that uh, after the appearance, what was the mistake Republicans made? denying the efficacy of the vaccine and becoming anti-vax. And there's good evidence that Republicans actually talked themselves into a higher death rate from COVID after the vaccine became available. Will Salatin, I'm not sure that Jonathan Chait is right, that the Democrats have really learned their lesson. What do you think? Oh, I think they have. I agree with John about this. Um, I think the Democratic Party has a longstanding problem in elections relative to the Republican Party, which is that it's the old Will Rogers thing. I belong to no organized political party. I'm a Democrat, right? It's the lack of coherence, the lack of commitment to a really clear common ideology. Democrats tend to be diverse. They believe in helping people, They, you know, helping the little guy, whatever that means. But 
they notoriously have trouble hurting the cats of the Democratic Party. So that is a disadvantage when you need to be single-minded and unified in an election. But it is a tremendous advantage when you come up against an issue where a commitment to an ideology is crippling. And that is true in the case of COVID. So I think the record does show that while both parties made mistakes in the era of COVID, Democrats were able to absorb the evidence of their mistakes. And I think John points out that by the school year of 2021, it had sunk in. Okay, we screwed up. We shouldn't have closed the schools. Masks began to come off. I would point out also that there was a precedent, as John points out, for expecting that closing the schools would be necessary, and that was the, the flu of 1918. And so that was a obviously a pandemic that hurt young people more than old people. And so there was a reason why Democrats made that mistake. And then it became clear over time that that wasn't true, that COVID was hitting the elderly much more and that kids were basically not the vectors that we thought and were not, it was not hurting them the same way. And so belatedly, and I'm sorry about it, and it, it is tragic that we had so much learning loss. It's tragic, the business losses, but there was a reason for what Democrats did. The other thing I would add here is that the risk if we got it wrong on COVID was much higher if in the scenario where COVID turns out to be more like the Georgia flu of Station Eleven, a novel where it's just killing everybody. So you took precautions at the beginning. Democrats were a little slow to learn, but they did. And conversely, what we have on the Republican side is a doubling down on the biggest error that Republicans made, which was disbelieving in vaccines, hyping, you know, the alleged harm from vaccines and downplaying the efficacy of vaccines and, you know, just hyping libertarianism about this. So what we have in the Republican Party is a very ideological party where the ideology has come to encompass the idea of resisting vaccines. And instead of learning that the vaccine was really good in this case and helpful, we have as this study points out, lots and lots of Republicans dead because they were told, advised, encouraged not to get vaccinated. So I agree with John's thesis, and I am proud to be more aligned with the Democratic Party, a party that gets things wrong but corrects its mistakes. Damon, the parallel to the Spanish flu of 1918, I think there was good evidence pretty early on that this virus was attacking the elderly much more than young people, and that in fact, young people mostly, not entirely, of course, but mostly came through unscathed. And the Democrats were very resistant to acknowledging that. The other thing is that the teachers' unions played a huge role in keeping schools closed. So in areas where teachers' unions had strong sway, schools remained closed for much longer than areas that did not. So what do you make of that? Yeah, my view on this question is not quite as... Um sanguine, I guess, as we just heard from Will Salatin, and I don't really buy Jonathan Chait's argument entirely. I think it's a little bit of stacking the deck to try to create a kind of symmetry between Republicans being crazy on vaccines, which, believe me, I, I agree they are. Yes. But school closures were a problem. It was a big 
part of what people were accusing Democrats of getting wrong. I'll believe that the Democrats have learned their lesson the next time there's a pandemic and the teachers union doesn't demand school closures again and then get its way, because that is really what happened. I mean, it was quite widely understood within the first month or two of the full-on pandemic that this was a virus that was extremely dangerous for elderly people and people with a lot of comorbidities like being very overweight or having a history of cardiac problems or in cancer treatment, things like that. Everyone was talking about it. And people knew from the early data that young people were not getting as sick as often or as badly ill. The problem is that teachers are neither elderly, for the most part, nor young people. They're in the middle somewhere. And I think the teachers' unions just decided that this is too risky for our members to go along with opening schools until we're absolutely sure this is over. And it went on way too long in large parts of the country. And I've seen no evidence that this wouldn't unfold exactly the same way again in a similar situation. Maybe, I hope it wouldn't, but that's part of the problem. The other part is that there are a lot of other things that people, I think, have been justly critical of members of the public health bureaucracy, which is a big target of the right these days. But the problem is it's not entirely unjustified. A lot of people who work in these in these institutions, in the federal government and adjacent to it, had a tendency early on in the pandemic to make public pronouncements that were far more certain than was justified based on what we knew as opposed to what we were speculating about. And I am willing to give these people a huge benefit of the doubt because I am so attuned in my own writing and thinking to the problem of uncertainty and the fact that when you're dealing with a deadly pandemic, the one that turned out to be the deadliest pandemic in a hundred years, that you sort of want to, as a public health authority, speak with authority and say what people must do. And you fear that if you say, I think masks don't work. And then a few weeks later, actually, I think masks do work, that you fear that you'll undermine your own authority. The danger of doing the opposite, I think, is worse, which is what you got was very confident pronouncements. Masks don't matter. They're not important very early on. And then a flip to a month or two later, you must wear masks. It's absolutely imperative that you must. You will die. You will kill grandma and so forth. And finally, the same uncertainty problem came in with the vaccines themselves. Vaccines were sold as you must take these to save yourself and to save your loved ones, especially older loved ones, your parents, your grandparents. You will kill them if you don't get vaccinated. Well, it turned out that actually transmission rates went down with the vaccines, but this was not the equivalent of what we get with a lot of the childhood vaccines. Instead, we got something more like the flu shot, where yeah, you're a little less likely to get it. And if you do, it's probably going to be less severe. And that's all great. That helped to drive down those morbidity numbers. But it's not quite, you're going to kill grandma if you don't have this. If you have this, you won't get sick. And I think a lot of Americans heard people confidently predict this and get it wrong on top of those other prior things that got wrong and threw up their hands and were like, 
you know, these people don't know what the hell they're talking about. And now you're talking about mandating that we take this. I don't believe you. And that has been horribly uh, corrosive for our already very badly sinking levels of confidence in public institutions. So I'm much more kind of in the middle, sort of like, you know what? Push comes to shove. I'm a Democrat. I think the Democrats did better than the Republicans on this. I think the anti-vax stuff on the right is insane. But don't pat ourselves on the back too easily or quickly about how this worked out. I'm even willing to grant, like, you know what? It's really hard to govern through an event like this when we are so uncertain. And so, fine, I'll give you a lot of the benefit of the doubt that a lot of people on the right are not willing to do. But I think it's more muddled than uh, Jonathan Chait has let on in that piece. Thank you for that. So, Bill Galston, one little perhaps lesson from all this that public health authorities could learn is that, you know, if you're not sure, don't claim to be sure, right? Say, to the best that we can figure out, you know, this vaccine will do X, or, you know, it looks to us at the moment as if masks help, but we can't say that with absolute certainty. But instead, they seem to want to eliminate all hedging because they were so afraid they would get non-compliance and they may have gotten more non-compliance because people lost confidence. But so comment on that if you want, but I also want to cite for you a hearing that happened just this week on the Hill where some Democrats certainly didn't sound as if they've learned their lesson about you know school closings. Representative Jamal Bowman of New York said, if we would have kept schools open, more people would have died. And he said that talk about learning loss was exaggerated. You had a Florida representative, Maxwell Frost, saying the real issue in schools is guns and everything else is a distraction. And then you had a congresswoman from Connecticut saying, if kids are dead, they don't learn. (laughs) That was a showstopper. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think any of us on this panel would argue with that last point. (laughs) I mean... But consider the source, Jamal Bowman. I mean, he is on the left edge of the left wing of the Democratic Party on everything. Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised that he took that position. What worries me more is the position that elements of the mainstream took during the pandemic. And I have to say, I agree with you and Damon that It's an abstraction to talk about the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. They are unwieldy coalitions of groups governed by some combination of belief and interest. And each party coalition has interest groups that are particularly powerful internally. We've talked a lot about evangelicals in the Republican Party. Well, I think that the teachers unions are pretty close to the equivalent within the Democratic Party. And that has been true for a very long time. I could tell you stories about that from the early 1980s. So, no, I am not confident that the party has learned its lesson because the party doesn't exist. The party is the vector sum of powerful interest groups pulling in different directions. And on this issue, I would be amazed if when the next comparable instance arises, which along with everybody else, I hope it doesn't, 
that the teachers would take a substantially different view. There must have been some researchers inside the National Education Association and the AFT who were aware early on of the evidence coming in from across the European Union that not only was keeping the schools open not particularly risky for kids, but it wasn't even that risky for teachers. Mm -hmm. So if a party shows itself incapable of learning when learning is most needful, will it be more capable of learning the next time around? I'm not so sure. Now, on your first point, Bona, I could not agree more. And if there were one phrase that I would want to banish, not only from the Democratic Party's lexicon, but also from our political lexicon in general, it would be follow the science. Mm -hmm. Follow the science is nonsense. Right. Science never is sufficient to give you an answer to a practical question, let alone a moral question. It contains evidence that cannot be denied if it's firmly entrenched science, and a lot of science isn't, by the way, but if, let's say it is firmly entrenched enough so that we can say that the overwhelming majority, the preponderance of the evidence points in a particular direction. Even so, there are almost always trade-offs that are relevant to the calculations of decision makers. And there are almost always moral trade-offs as part of that. And so the idea that a scientific pronouncement can resolve a policy question is bunk. And I hope I never hear that phrase in all of its dangerous naivete again. You shouldn't contradict the science, but you can be consistent with the science and take policy in a number of different directions. And that's the range of political choice. Yes. Linda, let us stipulate that the Republican parties or big chunks of the Republican Party's embrace of anti-vax extremism and lunacy is just heartbreaking and terrible on so many levels for our civic health as well as for our physical health. But let me just give an example of what the price was that was paid because of the mistake of keeping schools closed too long. This is from Michael Bloomberg. He says the decline in math scores among the bottom 10% of students was quadruple that of those in the top 10%. In reading, the losses for low performers were five times as large. Put simply, the pandemic did the most harm to the children who could least afford it. Well, that's not at all surprising. If you are a professional, upper-middle-class family, and during the pandemic, you had mom and dad working from home, and these are people who had college educations and advanced degrees, they could be online with their high-speed internet and helping their kids keep up with the schoolwork that was being provided. But if you were, for example, an immigrant family, maybe both parents actually being forced to be out in the workforce doing service jobs, doing those essential jobs, 
that are often done by immigrants. Your kids were at home without those resources. They didn't have college-educated parents. They likely didn't have high-speed internet or books or the kind of environment that would allow them to be able to keep up during that time. So, so those numbers are not in the slightest bit surprising. But there were, you know, other reasons why poor children, I think, really were harmed during this period. They lost access to nutrition in many cases. For, you know, substantial numbers of poor children get one or two meals a day in school. They get a breakfast, they get a lunch, and those may be the, you know, most nutritious meals of their day if their parents are having trouble. So this was a disaster for kids, and we should have recognized it, and we should have recognized it early. I don't think that that takes away from the question of whether or not Republicans did not do a great deal of harm in the tack they took, because it wasn't just discouraging people from taking vaccines, which many Republicans actively did, even those members of Congress who were, you know, first in line to get their shots with the doctors on the Hill or elsewhere, but also in promoting ridiculous, unproven, unscientific, and in some cases, dangerous cures for COVID, like ivermectin, which is a dewormer used on animals as somehow preventing people from from getting COVID. So I do- Hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine, which I had an episode with myself, I may have talked about on the the episode. Not that you took it for this. (laughs) I took it to prevent malaria, which is what it's used for. And I- prescription was written in an indecipherable way and I ended up taking too many and, you know, could have had severe liver damage as a result. So, I mean, there were lots of things the Republicans did that were awful. This is perhaps the first time that I've seen when a public health issue has divided along partisan lines. I mean, we're so divided as a country in so many ways on cultural issues, on political issues, on religion. But for public health to have been divided in this way is, I think, one of the great tragedies of the early 21st century. And I hope that should we have the misfortune of facing another epidemic that, you know, we'll probably make lots of mistakes, but God forbid they're on partisan lines again. Yes, well said. All right. I was planning on doing one more segment this week, but I think In light of the clock, we will put that off uh, until next week, although who knows, another indictment could be imminent, but uh, we'll just have to risk it. And so with that, I will turn to our final segment, which is the highlight or lowlight of the week. And let's start with our special guest, Will Salatin. So my highlight would be, we were discussing earlier whether the Republican Party is amenable to evidence, right? We have some signs now that, in fact, the party is, some fraction of it. There was a poll that came out this week from Brightline Watch, which is an organization that watches authoritarianism and threats to democracy in this country and in others, but mostly in this country right now. And they were looking at, among other things, Republican and independent, and to some extent, Democratic sentiment on some fundamental questions about Donald Trump's criminality. So on the question of whether Trump committed crimes 
in his handling of classified documents and in what he did after the government asked for them. In October of 2022, so last October, the percentage of Republicans who acknowledged, who said that Donald Trump had committed a crime with regard to the classified documents, and this is after the search of Mar-a-Lago, but before the indictment, obviously, 9%, only 9% of Republicans acknowledged that. Brightline Watch redid that poll within the last month since the indictment was released with lots of evidence about Donald Trump's withholding of documents, his, his handling of them, the pictures of them and the bathroom and the ballroom and so forth, the evidence of him telling people, showing off Iran war plants and whatnot. They asked the question again, did he commit crimes? This time, 25% of Republicans said he did. Now, that's only 25%, but it is significant movement in the right direction. Also, independence moves in independence went from 34% to 46% on this question. Again, these are not stellar numbers. We are not talking about a Republican Party that is really coming out of its cult of Trump. But we are talking now about enough Republicans that if even just one in 10 of the folks in the Republican Party who are now acknowledging that Trump committed a crime are willing to vote against Trump, willing to vote for Biden, willing to vote for a third party candidate, willing to stay home. You're now talking about numbers that can swing the 2024 election against Trump. So that is movement in a positive direction. And I'm very happy about that. My low light of the week is we were talking earlier about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and COVID. So earlier this week, Sean Hannity had Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on for a, an hour long town hall. And they talked about everything. Of course, Kennedy is now the darling of Hannity and the right. And among other things, uh, RFK Jr. lied about what he had said about the virus targeting ethnicities, that it was a bioweapon. He pretended that he hadn't suggested that it was designed to target certain ethnicities. He had. He spewed some of his garbage. We were talking about earlier about hydroxychloroquine. He claimed that hydroxychloroquine cures it he, and that there was lots of studies showing that. He's, he said the same thing about ivermectin. And when it came to Ukraine, of course, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said that it was all our fault. Putin wants peace, and we're the ones who have pushed Ukraine into war and whatnot. And the reason this is my low light of the week is not just that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said all this crazy stuff. It is that I watched this town hall, and I thought to myself, I would rather have Sean Hannity <laughs> as president of the United States than have RFK Jr. And when I am rooting for Sean Hannity, that makes me hate myself, and so that is my low light of the week. Damon, you're up next. Okay. Well, this week I will offer a highlight about a low light. I think a couple of times on the podcast over the years, I have plugged the work of my good friend Noah Millman, who has a substack now titled Gideon Substack. He has a very, very lovely, moving, sad post this week titled, Break the Barrel to Get Rid of the Serpent? Question mark. Tishabov Thoughts on the Conflict in Israel. Uh, that's a reference, by the way, to a Jewish holiday that's taking place this week. And the image of the barrel and the serpent relates to that holiday, as he explains in a very nice way in the piece. But the ultimate point of the essay is to use this holiday and what it commemorates to talk about events in Israel this week, namely 
the very right-wing government of Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, finally pushing through the judicial reform that it has been trying for for months now over the objections of hundreds of thousands of protesters who are appearing on the streets of Israeli cities. And I, I would just urge readers to seek out this piece because it is very thoughtful and it's especially worthwhile because it isn't just kind of shrill name-calling from one side to the other. It's an expression of genuine sorrow about what he sees uh, as what's going on in Israel, which is something like a very severe family quarrel among uh, Israeli citizens about what kind of a country they're going to be. If you want to learn a little bit more about exactly what is going on there, as well as a little bit about the Jewish holiday of Chishabov, which takes place this week, I hope you'll seek it out. Again, titled Break the Barrel to Get Rid of the Serpent? Question mark on Gideon's Substack by Noah Millman. Thank you for that. I am grieved by what is happening in Israel. And I would just add one quick thing, which is that among those who are vigorously protesting this change and the way it was done, not the necessarily the need for a change, but the way this was barreled through, pushed through, are lots of people who are themselves religious. There are plenty of people who oppose this so-called reform who think of themselves as religious as well. So it isn't quite a binary. All right, Linda Chavez. Well, I have a very personal low light this week, and I hope I can get through it without choking up. I lost my beloved 14-year-old Shih Tzu this mm. week, lost him yesterday. He has been in failing health for a number of months, and I was on the way to meet my son at the uh, animal emergency services to put him down, and he expired really while my son and I were passing him on to the technician. So it was very difficult. But Stringer Bell and those of our listeners who are fans of the show The Wire will recognize that name. Most of my pets over the last uh, 15 years have been named after characters in The Wire, including Avon Barksdale, Stringer Bell, Marlowe, and my current standard poodle, Snoop. But Stringer Bell was a really remarkable little fellow, brought such joy into my life. And one of the things that it's made me realize is that, you know, I can get very agitated about politics and what's going on in various public policy arena. But at the end of the day, when I'm, you know, settling down in the evening and looking forward to some quality time, it's the family relationships and that family includes my fur and feathered friends who bring me comfort and keep me grounded. And I think for many people, losing a pet is like losing a best friend or even a, a family member. So it's been a really, really uh, tough 24 hours. I'm so sorry, Linda. I agree with everything that you said, and I'm sorry you're going through that. It does remind me of that old saying, which is that you know you should endeavor to be the person your dog thinks you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bill Galston. Oh, dear. It's been a long time since I've had a dog, Linda, but I remember with stark clarity what it felt like to come home from freshman year at college look around for my dog, and to be informed that my dog had caught the wrong car. 
ago, and my parents didn't know how to tell me while I was away, so <laughs> they withheld this information until I returned. So yeah, a very quick comment on Damon's highlight of a low light, and then my own modest contribution. There is a statement in the Talmud, which I've been rolling round and round in my mind. When the rabbis say, they answer their own question, what destroyed the second temple in Jerusalem? And their answer is baseless mm -hmm. hatred. It wasn't hatred of the Jews for the Romans. It was the hatred of some Jews for other Jews. There is nothing that can destroy the state of Israel except the state of Israel. And there is particular reason, you know, to be grieved, as Mona rightly put it, baseless hatred. Keep that phrase in mind. Now, I have a highlight. You know, I know I'm the show's Eeyore, uh, but I have a highlight. Oh, that's a lot of competition for that, Bill. <laughs> I suppose, but I think I think I'm the winner. But you know, if there are any other contestants, <laughs> I want to read something into the record. And it occurred this week in New Hampshire. It began with a question for Nikki Haley from a pro-choice New Hampshire woman, who said, "Quote." You said on TV that women who get abortions should not be put in jail and should not be subject to the death penalty. But how exactly should women who get illegal abortions, women like me, how do you specifically think that we should be punished? And here's Nikki Haley's answer. In order for us to have a federal law, we're going to have to have a consensus. What does that consensus look like? Can't we all agree that we don't want late-term abortion? Can't we all agree that we want to encourage more adoptions and good quality adoptions so the children feel more love, not less? Can't we all agree that doctors and nurses who don't believe in abortion shouldn't have to perform them? Can't we all agree that contraception should be accessible? And can't we all agree that a woman who gets an abortion should not be subject to the death penalty or get arrested. That's where I think we start. And we do it with a level of respect. No more demonizing this issue. We're going to humanize this issue. I had a roommate who was raped in college. I wouldn't wish on anyone what she went through, wondering if she was okay. Everybody has a story. Let's be respectful of everybody's story. And let's figure out what we can do together instead of sitting there and tearing each other apart. Asked about Haley's answer, the pro-choice New Hampshire woman said she was a strong believer in reproductive rights, but had been satisfied with Miss Haley's response. I tried that out on my staunch wife. Same reaction. In a political scene marked by multiple low moments, certainly in, in the past few weeks or months, this struck me as a small, still voice for sanity in a debate that has been intractable for nearly 50 years. And 
I hope that Nikki Haley can find it in herself to summon more such moments so she could be the Republican candidate that I know a number of Republicans I respect hoped she could be. Thank you for that. I had not heard that, and I agree. It's a great answer. My only hesitation about it, Bill, is I wonder how well it would go down with the severe pro-life forces in the Republican Party. Maybe they wouldn't be as willing to be satisfied. I don't know. Uh, Look, I'm sure you're right, Mona, but the point is that she was willing to take a deep breath and speak, I think, from the heart about her sense of how we could move forward with a measure of comedy on this issue. And it may not be a winning strategy in the short term, but somebody has to start doing it. Thank you for that. All right. Well, for myself, I have a low light and a highlight. So the highlight is quick. It is that uh, this week in court filings, Rudolph Giuliani admitted that he lied about the two African-American election workers in Georgia and defamed them per se. That was in the filings. Then in the statements by lawyers, they said, oh, well, you know, he's not really, you know, he has other defenses. And I guess he's claiming a First Amendment defense or some ridiculous thing. But in any event, he did under oath acknowledge that he lied about them attempting to steal votes for Joe Biden. So that's something. My low light is as follows. Let's hear it. Think of President Xi, central casting, brilliant guy. You know, when I say he's brilliant, everyone says, oh, that's terrible. We call him. Well, he runs 1.4 billion people with an iron fist. Smart, brilliant, everything perfect. There's nobody in Hollywood like this guy. So it continues to amaze me. I'm gobsmacked. I lose words that Republicans can support a person who is so weak need for dictators. This is one of the most consistent things about Trump from the very beginning, back from the 1980s when he first burst on the national scene, is that he is just, he, he slavers over people who are authoritarians or dictators. First of all, the idea that Xi Jinping runs 1.4 billion people, excuse me, that's not <laughs> that's not accurate, but I guess in, in Trump's fantasy world, that's how it is. And that he does it with an iron fist. That is about the most un-American idea that I can possibly imagine hearing from a leading politician. And yet, you know, there are all of these Republicans who say that he is their guy and also that he's tough on China. His fanboyness vis-a-vis Xi and Putin and uh, Kim Jong-un is, uh, it could not be more well documented. And even now he's still doing it and getting no pushback from people on the, uh, in Republican circles. Just amazing. All right. With that, I want to thank our panel and our special guest, Will Salatin. I want to acknowledge our producer, Katie Cooper, our sound engineer, Jonathan Siri, and our editor, Aaron Keene, today. And I also want to thank all of our listeners, and we will return next week as every week. 